This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Up Under the Roof by Manly Wade Wellman. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon, and it runs 14 minutes. We will be discussing it afterward. Up Under the Roof by Manly Wade Wellman A Tale of Fear When I was twelve years old, I lived in a shabby old two-story house, built square below and double-gabled above. The four gables contained an upstairs room apiece, each facing a different direction, and the entire four making a cross, with a hall and stairwell at the centre. The front and side rooms were sealed and plastered and calcimined for bedrooms, but the unfinished rear one held only trunks, boxes and broken furniture. This part of the house was hot and dusty, and open right up to the peak of its gable. Directly above its doorway, to the central hall, gaped an empty dark triangle, leading into the slant-sided cave above the bedroom ceilings. This lumber room was called the garret, though it was not a real garret. The real garret was that dark space, up under the roof. I was the youngest person in the house by more than a decade, and my youth offended everyone bitterly. I was constantly reminded of my childish stupidity and inexperience. Nobody felt that years would mend me, and in time I grew to share that opinion. I tried never to make a statement or venture an opinion that had not been voiced previously by one of my elders. Even at that I came in for plenty of snubs and corrections, and learned to withdraw into myself. The downstairs parlour was full of books, and I read them a great deal, including nearly all of an old Encyclopaedia Britannica. This taste for reading attracted some curious attention on the part of my guardians. Occasionally one of them would suggest to the others that I might be trained for the law or the ministry. Never was I consulted as to my own ambition, which would have shocked the household. I wanted to be a deep-sea diver. The summer was a hot one, and my room, in the gable on the right or northern side, had only one window. The sun's rays fell directly onto the sloping walls, which were the only gable's pitches plastered in, affording little insulation. I slept poorly bothered by strange and vivid dreams. Sometimes I started awake, itching nervously at armpits and groins, hearing every rustle of the cottonwoods outside and the creakings of the house timbers. After a while, I am not exactly sure when, I began to hear something else. Awareness of that sound grew upon me, first slowly and faintly, then with terrifying clarity over a number of hot, wakeful nights. It was something up above, between the roof peak and the ceiling. Something big and clumsy and stealthy. I remember telling myself once that it was a rat, 
but the moment the thought came into my head, I knew it for a silly lie. Rats skip and scamper, they are light and sure. This was huge and weighty, a bulk that, I judged, was far more than my own. It moved, I say, with a slow, unsure stealth that sustained a rhythm of a sort. It did not drag or walk, but it moved. Years afterwards, I saw through a microscope the plodding of an amoeba. The thing up under the roof sounded as an amoeba looks. A mass stretching out a long, loose portion of itself, then rolling and flowing all of its substance into that portion, and so creeping along. Only it must have been many, many thousands of times larger than an amoeba. Before long I was hearing the noise every night. I would wait for it, lying awake until it humped itself across the ceiling above me. Always with it came fear, fear that did not diminish with time. I would stare in the dark, my tongue would dry up between my teeth, and my fingertips would tingle as though they had been rubbed sore. On my back would spout and fan and winnow little involuntary wings of chill, making my spine shrink and quiver as though ice mingled with the marrow. The ceiling, I knew, would descend some night upon me like a great millstone, then crumble about my bed. Something huge and soft would wriggle free of the broken bits and sprawl upon me. There could be no talking about the business I well knew, long before I had learnt that no one would listen or care. As I have said, I was resented by the other dwellers in that house. Once, when a neighbour boy of fifteen gave me a terrible beating in the front yard, Everyone watched from our front windows, but none stirred to help me, not even when I thought I would fall dead at my enemy's scornful feet. When tired of pulping my face with his knuckles, he turned away at last, I dragged myself in, and was tongue-lashed on all sides for an hour. Today I cannot remember exactly what was urged against me, but the tears I had not shed for pain welled forth under the scolding. Things like that made me hesitate about asking for help. One morning I did inquire at breakfast if the others had heard anything strange, but I was only reprimanded for interrupting a discussion of local politics. That night the noise was louder and more terrifying than ever. It began above some other room. Then it trundled along my ceiling, slower and still slower, until it paused just above my bed. It seemed to me, at that moment, that the lath and plaster were no tighter or stronger than a spiderweb, and that the entity was incalculably more awful than the prince and father of all spiders. It crouched there, almost within reach of me, gloating and hungering, turning over in its dark mind the problem of when and how to take hold of me. I could not have stirred from my bed, could not have cried out even, 
The thing and its fear were with me always, night after night, and week after week. Until a day past the middle of the summer, a dark and rainy day, when it did not wait for nightfall. I was alone in the house, tired of hearing the rain and the swish of wet leaves outside. I had exhausted the books in the parlour and remembered a stack of illustrated magazines, very old, in the lumber room. I climbed the stairs. The lumber room was unthinkably ugly and close with a sort of brown light reflected by the unpainted joists and the insides of the shingles. I found the magazines and began to pour through them. All had been silent except for the rain outside. But in the midst of my searchings, there came a hump, hump from overhead, from the opening that led above the ceilings. Something sly and heavy was there, looking down upon me. But in one scrabbling moment, I had fled downstairs and to the front door. There was no swelling of courage that made me pause before rushing out. Only a sensible, if hopeless, consideration of what must follow. I could leave the house and mope in the raining street until someone came back. Then I would have to come back too, and in time I would have to go to bed. Then the creature that made the noise would come down. It would wait no longer, for it had seen me and my tortured terror. It would flow to the floor, through my door, and creep into bed with me. I would know how it looked, what colour it was, and what it wanted with me. A cold determination came, I know not whence, stiffening my limbs and neck like new sawdust poured into an empty doll. I walked slowly back through the house to the foot of the stairs. There I paused, trying to lift myself to the bottom step. I could not, and turned and walked to the back porch. There, upon the wooden box, lay a hand-axe. It was dull and rusty, and wobbled upon its helve. But I took it, and this time I mounted the stairs, slowly, one after another, with long, tight breaths between. The old boards creaked under my feet, as if aghast at my foolish daring. I reached the upper hall, and went back into the lumber room. It had turned darker than when I had first come to find the magazines. I made myself look up at the triangular opening, and that took a mustering of all my will-power. But there was nothing to see. I stuck the handle of the axe into the waistband of my knickerbockers, and dragged a heavy, dust-laden old bureau over against the wall by the door. On that I placed a broken chair, then a candle-box precariously on end. At last I climbed up on the bureau, up on the chair, up on the box. My chin came level with the threshold of the black cavern. It was like gazing into a pool of ink. I got hold of a cross timber and drew myself slowly up. 
the candle box tipped over and fell from beneath my feet, striking the floor of the lumber room with a crash like an explosion. But the next moment I had dragged myself up inside the loft. The roof peak was so low above my head that I could barely rise to my knees. I pulled out the axe and tried to hold it in my mouth like a pirate's dirk. But it was too big and heavy, so I kept it in my right hand. Then, on my knees and my left hand, I went forward on top of the rafters. Every inch took me deeper into darkness, and when I reached and crept past a big rough chimney, I might as well have been in a coal mine. First I went straight to the front of the house. I went all along the wall and into the corners. Then I dragged myself around. I could see the light at the far end, partially obstructed by the chimney. Crawling back, I explored gropingly the space above the south bedroom. Last of all, I drove myself into the chamber above my own room, where I had always heard the sounds. I found nothing. I always finished with those three words when, grown up enough to be listened to, I told this story in after years. But I knew then, and I know now, that there was something, or there had been something. Until I drove myself to face it, that something had been a mortal peril. Had I done anything else, it would have come looking for me. What would have followed, I am sure nobody can think. But from that time forward, there was not the slightest murmur of noise up under the roof. I grew to sleep so soundly that I had to be shaken in the mornings. Nor did I know fear again, not even in the war. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Jim. And we're going to talk about Up Under the Roof by Manly Wade Wellman, a, subtitled A Tale of Fear, uh, published first published in Weird Tales, October 1938. I was going through the issue of Weird Tales, October 1938, a very good issue. Um, this was a nice little short story by Manly Wade Wellman, somebody who I, I haven't really read that much by. He, he did the Hounds of Tindalos, right? No, Frank Belknap Long. Okay, I got them confused. What is what is the most famous Wellman story? Is it the Thunstone stories or something? Uh, well, for me, the ones I know best and what I see reference most in connection with him is his um, set of short stories that were collected as uh, Who Fears the Devil, featuring his character Silver John, okay. who's kind of like an Appalachian sort of proto-hippie wandering balladier, balladier who, right. who fights evil okay very yeah. very sort of folky tales and uh, not nearly as naff as actually my synopsis makes it sound uh, <laughs> well they, they seem to be fairly late in his career i'm looking at the the numbers and they start in the 50s but go into the 80s and 60s well maybe the 80s are reprints uh, so I think he kept adding to them over the years, I think, is a character, you you know, like a lot of serial characters he kept returning to. Mm-hmm. So I think about his earlier weird fiction stuff, he's a lot more um, 
sort of classic weird tales horror that's a, a touch lovecrafty and i think he was kind of on the uh sort of periphery of that kind of lovecraft circle at the time but i think he was a bit too late and lovecraft had already passed away mm. so there wasn't any correspondence between them I've re- i have read some of his just looking through his his list like there's one called the werewolf snarls that i've read a couple times and i keep rereading it by accident because it has a werewolf in it and it's not actually a very good story it's not a terrible story but uh, it is funny because I, I picked this story because it was short, not uh, you know to to read with my student. And then as I'm reading it, um, he loved it, my student loved it, and I loved it. Um, and I think it's because it is so short, but it also it's kind of it's got a really odd ending for a Weird Tales story, right? A story from the magazine Weird Tales. Paul, is this? Do, do you remember reading any? Uh, Manly Wade Wellman before? No, this is the first time I've ever encountered Wellman in any form, as at least I can remember. Maybe back in the distant age of time when I was reading all sorts of anthologies, especially in junior high, there was there was this couple of anthologies of horror, weird stuff that were in the school library. But I don't remember. I only remember one story out of that volume, and I only remember the author of that volume. So maybe I read Wellman yeah. and didn't know. Don't remember it. It's possible because yeah. that was a that was an old book that I had come across in the library. I have no idea where they got it. It was like a nineteen forties, thirties book. So it could have very well had Wellman. I do. I mean, the story felt familiar. So. I do wonder if I had encountered it somewhere, somewhere, or maybe it's just that whole primal feel of like oh, yeah. the, the, the fears of a 10 year old boy hearing things. That's that, that goes really deep into anybody's psyche. So I'm not sure whether I'm manufacturing a memory or if I really did read this and didn't remember it until now. Yeah. It, it feels like something that happened to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've, had some weird, I've had some weird dreams and, and and false uh, false echoings of what I thought was going on. Yeah, because sometimes I not quite lucidly dream, but dream enough that I sure. imagine things actually around me. That's like so they could throw me throw me for a loop. And like wait a minute, that wasn't real. Wait, no, 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 that wasn't real. Thank God. What were you going to say, Mister Jimin? As it actually reminds me of uh, two other short stories. Mm-hmm. Um, one that's been much anthologized, the uh, cellar by David H. Keller. Oh yeah, I just about did a, a show boy on who has yeah. A, yeah, yeah, who has an absolute terror of something in the cellar. Um, and there's another one. Um, I, I think it's called Message to the Pigman. Wow. And I can't remember who it's by, but it's about um, again, it's a child and he's terrified of this being he hears his parents talk about the pigman. And they have bins at the uh, back of their house in the back alley that runs behind it. And they put all the scraps out for the pig man. And he gets the job of taking this food to the pig man. And he, he believes it is this humanoid pig. And uh, the story ends, he actually meets the pig man. And it is a farmer who comes around and collects scraps to take oh. and feed his own pigs. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But it's like, it has that similar sort of feel to this. It's kind of the idea of confronting your fears. and Yeah. Um, in the, in that story, it's kind of thoroughly debunked. In, in this one, it's kind of debunked, but not yes. <laughs> in a really interesting way. Yes. Well, um, did either of you guys get to see the the little short movie? I I wish I could find it. Uh, that short film. All I saw was the the trailer. Yeah, 
So I, thought, I thought maybe you guys had it looks better terrific though, searching right? through than I did, but I only saw the trailer. I couldn't actually find the film. I thought maybe it's, you were able to. Uh, I so wish I so wish I could have found it. If we had had six months, maybe I could have tracked down an email and said, please, 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 let me see it. Um, but it's it's kind of a sad story. You know, short films are not. They're like sort of pilots for TV shows that never get made. Um, if you go to the screening, you'll see it. That that's about it. Almost no short films get, ever get a release, right? An actual DVD release, or I mean, Netflix. How many short films are on Netflix? Zero, I believe, is the answer. Yeah, pretty right? much. Yeah. So uh, a, a a film like that, which and honestly, short films like that are designed to be calling cards. They're it's like. You make this film, and it's like your calling card, you know, in the in the old-fashioned sense, where you would go to knock on the movie producer's house and give them your card and say, yes, I'd like to work in the movies, right? The, these short films, they get sent out to people, uh, you know, as, you know, take me on as a client if you're an agent, or make me a... Um, make me a movie director because <laughs> look i have the skills right they're not designed for actual audiences like me but i would love to have anthologies of short films like that you know especially ones adapted from weird tales i mean i, I it looked i was thinking about how perfect this is as a film because it's all psychology of the of this kid who has no resources right his parent—he doesn't even have parents. His guardians, he calls them. Well, that's it. I wondered about that in the story. Kind of, well, is he actually an orphan? And what's the, you know, what's the setup? And I, I figure it's something like you know, his uncle takes care of him, and you know, mm. he, he's twelve years old. Everyone else is at least ten years older, and they all think he's an idiot. Um, they talk about local politics. He he's not interested in local politics. He goes through his list of things he he's interested. He wants to be a deep sea diver. Wouldn't tell anybody that because they just laugh him <laughs> out out the door. He he um, he reads everything he can get a hold of, including the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I I want to come back to. Um, and and I li- I've I listened to your version a couple of times, Mr. Jim Moon, and I want to point out how weird it is. This kid believes there's a thing up under the roof, um, but he's also looking around the house for something to read. <laughs> like, there's these two <laughs> things going on, right? One is he can't sleep because there's a fucking monster above his bed <laughs> about to kill him. and come in, No, come into his bed, creep into his bed with him where he will see what it looks like, see its color, and feel what it wants from him which is pretty goddamn creepy and yet he's also wandering around the house looking for something to read and remember some old magazines in the lumber room and you know normally if this was a i don't know a normal kind of story i would say well you threw me out you know i've been thrown out of the suspense but i remember what my life was like when i was about 12 years older thereabouts and you have these strange ideas where yeah, you're still living your life, right? <laughs> so even though you feel like you're going to get murdered at any point, you say, you know, I, I still want to read those comics books I saw earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and so it doesn't well, not is, fit, I think. Well, it, this fits into kind of a, 
I don't know, I suppose it's a sub sub genre of stories of kids versus monsters with the mm. I think the two famous modern examples are Stephen King's It and Summer of Fear by Dan Simmons. Mm. And there's an awful lot more about kids who find there is a real monster, <laughs> that the bogeyman is real, and um, no one's going to believe them, and it's down to them to sort it out. And this is probably, might be one of the, the great granddaddy of it. And all mm. those stories, I think part of the appeal is they always have these touches of, yes, there's a monster, but there's also, I'm also a kid, no one listens to me. Me. And you still have to go to school and you still really want just, you know, read comic books or magazines and play with toys. And there's that there's that tension between, you know, um, on one hand, sort of having to man up literally Mm -hmm. and, you know, fighting the monster often is, uh, you know, a heavy handed symbol for a coming of age. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's in here beautifully. Yeah, I want to read these two paragraphs for our listeners. I mean, the listen to the audiobook is part of this episode, but I just want to read these two paragraphs to show that, what page that are you uh, on? I'm on I'm on page four ninety-four of, okay. of the uh, of the uh, PDF from a Weird Tales. So just just to show you that dichotomy. The thing and its fear were with me always, night after night, and week after week, until a day past the middle of the summer, a dark and rainy day when it did not wait nightfall. I was alone in the house, tired of hearing the rain and the swish of wet leaves outside. I'd exhausted the books in the parlor, remembered a stack of illustrated magazines very old in the lumber room. I climbed the stairs. The lumber room was unthinkably ugly and close, with a sort of brown light reflected by the unpainted joists and the insides of the shingles. I found the magazines and began to pour through them. Like, all I think, I'm always under this fear, I'm under this fear, I'm under this fear. As you said, I need something to read, dang it. (laughs) Give me something to read. And then and then he starts hearing the the hump bump from overhead. I want I want to point the... out how interesting this sentence is. Um, that actually that first paragraph you read, the the back half of this sentence, the thing and its fear were with me always, night after night, week after week, until a day past the middle of summer, so midsummer, right? Um, mm-hmm. A dark and rainy day when it did not wait for nightfall. What is it? <laughs> it is the thing. The thing. Now, what what's strange is, it's he's saying it's it, but it's actually him. He he's the one who goes into the lumber room, right? He's the one. he's talking. He's talking about it as in the the, the that's that's referencing because he then starts hearing the the creature. So he's talking about the thing didn't wait for nightfall to start terrifying him. Right. It started terrifying him while he was in the lumber room. During but it the turns day. it turns out in that he he can't put it off anymore like uh, what i think is so cool about this story is that in it's it's weird psychology there's a sort of a symmetry um so i I was i was i think i told marissa um that the title for this story should not be up under the roof it should be the thing up under the roof because that is the kind of story it is it's it's a story about a thing right or Mm -hmm. and if we think of um the John Carpenter movie. I mean, I tell my students don't ever use the word thing when you can use a more specific word because it doesn't conjure up anything in particular, right? But that's the whole point of this this kind of story is it, you know it and them and they whatever they and them and it are or the thing is 
Um, well, more... so you have to read the story to find out. It's exactly. The, it's the and first hook, isn't it? You put it, in the title. It's totally. It, to- it totally is the first hook. And mm. and the thing is, is this is actually the hook that that drives us to you know get fire and and, and go into a cave and and face the fear that's in there. You know the the climbing into the earth with a sword in in under or in your teeth, as in he tries right like a pirate. He tries to climb <laughs> yes. into the. <laughs> And and there's this weird symmetry between him being underneath it and it being above him. And if you think of the title as the thing up under the roof, he is eventually the only thing up under the roof. Because when he goes up there after it, and he shuffles around, like imagine anyone else was in the house at that point, and what the hell is that noise above me? <laughs> right? I mean... His imagination is really what the thing is. It turns out that there, there is no monster. I, I mean, one way of reading it anyway is there's absolutely zero monster up there. The monster is conjured up by his imagination. <clears throat> um, but I, I, it's still in Weird Tales. It's not a, here's a funny, like, this feels like it could have been a true story, if you know what I mean. But but, well, but but how do you explain the last two paragraphs, then? You, you better read them for us. Okay. So I'm going to read this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the sentence before the last two paragraphs. He, he, struck, uh, he, he goes up. He goes to face the monster. I found nothing. I always finished with those three words when, growing up to be listened to, I told this story in after years. But I knew then, and I know now, that there was something, or there had been something. Until I drove myself to face it that something had been a mortal peril. Had I done anything else, it would have come looking for me. What would have followed, I'm sure nobody can think. But from that time forward, there was not the slightest murmur of noise up under the roof. I grew to sleep so soundly that I had to be shaken in the mornings. Nor did I ever know fear again, not even in the war. Yeah, that so, last line is killer, right? Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the, uh, the, the great war, uh, World War II sort of st- Stabbing the stabbing the yeah, heart. Yeah, like, it oh, actually God. has to be World War One because this is uh, from October thirty-eight. Yeah, which is right. even yeah. more of a horror, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, World War One's even worse. Imagine so, yeah. thinking it's my turn to go over the top. Like in World War Two, there's no like, you know, if if you're if you're really screwed up, you retreat, right? Your guys retreat, but. The generals just kept pushing in World War One, so it's over the top, boys, and the, the whole guys well, in front of you get mowed well, yeah, down. Well, yeah, because defense, defense, yeah, because defense was better than offense in World War One, so you wind up getting the meat grinder of uh, the trenches. Yeah, there's like World no, War Two offense. There's no better. There's, just imagine that lurking dread. It's my turn to go over the top. I just saw all my guys mowed down. Now it's my turn. I mean, We're, you guys both have seen Wonder Woman, right? Yes. 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 <laughs> Yeah, so, so it's just, it's just the, yeah, the no man's land see, scene in Wonder Woman. It's like encapsulates that per- perfectly. It's like it's it's it, it takes a superhero to face that sort of thing, and yet millions of ordinary people had to face that and die. So for him to not be afraid of that, yeah, in World War One, that's I mean, right. Right. It's this, it's it's literally the got to be the worst war for scariness. I think. Because I'm surprised there's not even more horrible fiction out of that war than there, and, and, and genre fiction than there already is. I mean, there is there there is to be found. I mean, not only in these tales but in other movies and and books. Um, for example, 
there's a Doctor Who episode. Don't roll your eyes, Jesse. It's an old Doctor Who episode called The War Games. And the doctor lands it. on a plat. Yeah, the yeah, the, 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 he lands. He looks like he's landed in the middle of World War One. He hasn't, but it's because it's just a recreation of it. But it just shows us like how horrible this sort of life really is. It it it's just like it's it's just a an inescapable and unfathomable uh, blow to the psyche. I mean. We get Tolkien out of World War One. We get so much out of we get Genesis World of War. the Daleks out of World we War One, ge- which yes, which oh, is yeah, I was wondering, yeah, is you- the degeneration of society, right? So that well, I mean, one of the great things about the old Doctor Who is is it's not all about the special effects, right? It's it's that line that line of dialogue effects. when they they're holding two guns they found on dead corpses, and one of them is you know a sterling submachine gun from world war ii and the other one is a basically a blunderbuss and then uh, mm. someone picks up a third one and it's a laser pistol right and and they say oh this war is kind of strange well um i was just watching a youtube channel last night uh called forgotten weapons it's a it's a it's a really weird youtube channel it's basically just a guy who is really interested in guns and he goes through all all the history of guns and and he, he in his collection he has you know an assortment of weapons from many different eras, but one of the things that he's fascinated by, and of course it is, it's right in that uh, Genesis of the Daleks, is when, when at the beginning of the, you know, for example, in the beginning of the Japanese uh, uh, version of World War II, their weapons look a certain way. By the end, the same manufactured weapons for the same job look like they're barely keeping shit together. Like, so they have bayonets at the beginning, and they have you know little curls and beautiful connections, and you know they're using wood and and high grade steel. And by the end, it's it, it's the same outline, but all the trim is gone. And you know they're not using wood; they're using bamboo and string. And you know there's no uh, no filed off and polished points. It's all it's like we're barely getting this shit done right and that uh-huh. that sense of degeneration uh of destruction is 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 great in in that i don't know how i got so deep into genesis of the daleks i guess i watched <laughs> it recently but um i oh and also what happens in maybe that's why what happens to the people of uh scarrow they turn into what they turn uh, into daleks <laughs> or <laughs> More importantly, what's inside that Dalek capture, right? They, ne- they don't show it in that episode, but re- or if they do, it's barely, right? But they're oh, basically they're, they're, limbless. They have the mutations in the caves. And That's in the, right. They have all the, the little blobby yeah, mutants in the final after, form, right? he says, mm, right? And yes. we, we see what mm. Davros looks like. What the fuck happened to Davros? <laughs> right? I mean, he's, he's half... De- he's... He's sort of down the line developed, and the moral degeneration, right, that happens in that, and it, it, it and all that whole episode is also kind of, um, it's also kind of the, um, the slave system. Now that I think about it, um, that they were making the V twos, you know, inside a mountain, and they had all these. Uh, you guys probably haven't watched this episode recently enough to remember, but 
Um, I, I, I can I can see my copy of the episode from where I'm sitting. I, I, I've, it was a couple months since I last saw it, but yeah, I, wa- I watch it every so often. It's good. It's a good episode. So uh, one of the things that happens is they're loading the rocket with you know radioactive materials to nuke the other city, and they don't care that their their mutants are mutating even more and going to die from the radiation sickness, including probably Sarah Jane Smith, who's mm. got enough radi- radioactivity from all her visits to the doctor. I doubt she she lasted much longer after. <laughs> she, she got a heavy dose of radiation pretty much every episode. Or, or um, <laughs> what was that? Uh, she also gets... Um, Mind-controlled. And- oh, and no no oxygen for a long time. There's several episodes where she she's starved of oxygen. It's really hard on companions. <laughs> Anyways... Um, <laughs> Yeah, getting a we, we could spend a whole episode on that, but that's a different <laughs> I, I thing. I guess so. <laughs> but I think I think it's com- uh, what's so cool about Doctor Who is it it really it it is digging up this old stuff and reusing it in its own way. Um, At least the older episodes, the newer episodes, yeah. as you say, are much more special effect than in the moment. I, I, I would kill for a good historically crunchy Doctor Who episode like Genesis of the Daleks again, I but I haven't seen one in the new stuff at all. The, <clears throat> no, it's, it's not. There's one on Radio Four they've done. Which um, one, which ones are you talking about? The new uh, Tom Baker's. Yes, yeah, the, oh, the, the new terrific, Tom Baker. Right? There's a, there's a uh, is it Wrath of the Iceni, which is yep. a full-on straight historical adventure going back to uh, the times of Boudicca. But that really, really gets into, yeah, it's really yeah, good. Yeah. It's only an hour. Well, long, it really gets really into good. the morality of war and um, uh, proper old-school Doctor Who discussion of real real themes and uh mm-hmm. but in a, an sf story and they have some good uh, there's some more other ones the energy of the daleks isn't bad and i, I really oh, like yeah, yeah. layer of the layer of the white worm no what was uh trail of the white worm try it this uh <laughs> it's it's funny it's funny it, it's um it, they're well written actually it's it, it they feel like old-fashioned and they even uh, who's the uh companion is it uh, Lila. Oh, Lila, right good old Lila. Yeah, so uh, how did we get to Manly Wade Wellman and Doctor Who? I don't know. <laughs> uh, we were talking about the whole fear thing when we got to World War One. that's how we got to Doctor Who. Yeah. But going back to where we actually were, that paragraph, it talks about, I mean, the point of that paragraph is he, the kid believes, at least after that I found nothing, that if he hadn't faced the fear, the fear would have killed him. And you could take that a number of ways. You can take that as... There was a creature there, and in facing it, he dispelled it. You can take it as if he hadn't faced his fear, then then the fear would just consume him over his lifetime. And, for example, when he gets to World War I, he wouldn't have been able to act as a soldier. Is the creature real? That that, that second last paragraph makes it real ambiguous whether mm-hmm. the creature is real, real, real in his mind, all, all a manifestation, but it's for all kinds of purposes, real or what have you. It, there's something, something was in that attic, even if it's only in his head, and he had to go up under the roof to dispel it and get rid of it. Otherwise, otherwise, it would have consumed him in the end. So he had a basic. It's almost like almost like coming of age thing. This is a, a turn in his life, and he managed to cross that threshold and move on as a as a person by facing. What uh, terrified him? I wanna, I wanna um, expand upon that because uh, I think the way w- sometimes stories just work. You know, they just work 
no matter what. And this is this has actually been reprinted a bunch of times, but always in the same book. Um, there, there's some other printings, but there's one book, and I, I think I have a copy. And I love these stories because they're all. I think they're almost all from Weird Tales. Um, there's a series of these books by uh, edited by Al Sorrentino and Martin H. Greenberg, and they're always 100 blank horror stories or weird stories, right? So this one is 100 hair-raising little horror stories. And they, they are little, like, three-page, four-page stories, five-page at maximum. And you get a hundred of these, you know, old stories, and they're almost always from Weird Tales. And they're really... That's exactly what it's about. It's a, it's about fear. It's not even horror as much as, like, just this dread that's out there. It's, it's not so much the, you know... The, seeing the meat, you know, and seeing the guts as much as feeling the dread. And in the on page 494, uh, the third paragraph down, uh, we get this sentence. This is tri- really terrific. Long before I had learned that nobody would listen or care. <laughs> Horrible. And then he says, <laughs> as I have said, I was resented by the other dwellers in that house. Not even, you know, my family. Once... When a neighbor boy of 15 gave me a terrible beating in the front yard, everyone watched from our front windows. <laughs> I, I haven't had that happen to me, but I've had something very similar, right? Everyone watched from their front windows. None stirred to help me, not even when I thought I would fall dead at my enemy's scornful feet. When tired of pulping my face with his knuckles, he turned at last and I dragged myself in and was tongue-lashed on all sides for an hour. Right? So they don't say, <laughs> they don't say, oh, uh, sorry about that. I was too afraid to help you. Or, oh, it's going to make a man of you. Right? They're like, you wimp. What? And then he says, today I cannot remember exactly what was urged against me, but the tears I had not shed for the pain welled forth under the scolding. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Today, I cannot remember exactly what was urged against me, but the tears I had not shed for the pain welled forth under the scolding. So, it's not the pain of the beating that was the hard part. It's like, on top of all of that, of, on top of having watching you, watching me getting the crap beaten out of me, that I get scolded is what makes it worse. He has absolutely nothing to depend on, right? No one can help him. And then he says, things like that made me hesitate about asking for help. <laughs> you think? <laughs> One morning, I did inquire at breakfast if others... Ha- it sounds like he's almost like in a boarding house, right? Like he's not, he's uh, disconnected. If others It does remind me strange. of sort of tales of um, know, Great Depression era orphans and oh, yeah. Dickensian fiction and that kind yeah. of thing. Or yeah, I mean, he could have been. It could have been an orphanage almost, right? It, mm. it doesn't he, feel he, big enough, but he, he does even feel like a part of the place, just kind of transitory living in the place. And and there's this great idea that it welled forth uh, while I was rereading and listening to it. Um, so we sympathize with the reader, not just because presumably we've all been beaten up at some point. But also because he's a reader, right? And even though there's this threat lurking above him at all times that prevents him from sleeping and has him frozen with fear most of the time, he's also, you know, he he's 
ravenous in his reading, and he has ambitions that he won't share with other folks. Um, but the this description, listen to this. The downstairs parlor was full of books. So that's actually heaven, right? As opposed to up under the roof, which is hell. Uh, and I read them a great deal, including nearly all of an old Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, I attempted to read the Encyclopedia. I don't think it was a Britannica, but, you know, one of those many-volume sets. I think it was Funk and Wagnalls, actually. Funk <laughs> um, <laughs> Wagnalls Encyclopedia. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a big task, right? A very big task. And if you are determined to read every article in every section, I think you're... Uh, going to be doing it for a long time i once at one point i asked my mom who was a teacher because i hated school so much i asked her how about this i'm I, i'm making a deal if i read this this set of encyclopedias um can i not go to school and, <laughs> and she entertained the idea and then i started doing it and she said no 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 you have to go to school <laughs> so i wish i wish i'd had been able to take that bargain because i i hated school so much but um it struck me in thinking about that situation with me and sit, this guy, you know, when you sit down to read the encyclopedia, that's when you know you're a diehard reader because <laughs> there's a lot of boring subjects. What do you start with? You start with Aardvark. But yeah, then... You start with the A's. <laughs> yeah. Then, what do you find that's so great in the first A's book? The Amoeba. <laughs> For me, it was astronomy. But think mm. about it. The amoeba, he'd never even seen one in under a microscope before, right? He says, years afterwards, I saw through a microscope the plotting of an amoeba. The thing up under the roof sounded as an amoeba looks, which is a pretty interesting sentence by itself. A mass stretching out a thin, loose portion of itself, then rolling and flowing all of its substance into that portion, and so creeping along. Only it must have been many, many thousands of times larger than an amoeba. So I, I think that he scared himself into figuring out what it is, right? He hears these noises up under the roof, because he, there's only one point in the story where he sees it, right? And I, I picture that that moment like when he goes into that lumber room. I picture that moment like whenever you see the YouTube, not YouTube meme, but the internet meme where it says uh, you know ceiling cat <laughs> there's a cat sticking its head out of the ceiling <laughs> down at you cats you know love hiding in the darkness and lurking waiting for their their prey and they'll you know hide in a shoebox or a bag or if they've got a little opening into the ceiling absolutely there's something up there for sure but when he goes up there after it right with a with a crappy hand axe that's falling apart off of its helve and probably <laughs> rusty and you can't hold it in his teeth like a pirate um he's he's kind of reversing the 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 horror of his life and and be, and i think that's why that ending where you know he says i never knew fear again not even in the war i could face anything because i faced that thing Mm-hmm. It's a power story, really, right? I agree. I think it's, yeah, it's very good. much so. Sorry? I mean, I think that if the ending, it's his kind of... I'm so reminded of a, a quote. Uh, I think it might have been Jung, or just another Jungian uh, 
disciple, but he said, uh, angels, monsters, gods, and demons may not exist, but the human mind behaves as if they are. Mm. It is a ghost story, isn't it, right? He's mm. haunted. He's haunted, and, and you can see why he's haunted, right? Uh, that's what's so good about this story is the setup, the house, the description of the house, the the lack of description of the residence, the specificity of what he he's reading and what things look like, but it's all in memory. It's that description of the sound, like, like being in an amoeba, is just mm-hmm. wonderfully evocative. And I think for a reader... It it sort of wrong foots your um, perception of going saying oh it's rats or a cat or squirrels up there. You think oh god what the hell is up there? What, what right. makes a sound like that? Yeah, rats rats it would be freaky, but it's not. I mean, when he there's a there's the scene where he talks about when it comes it's gonna come down right, and he talks about how it's gonna get into bed with him. Yeah, here it is. It's on the mm. last page. He says, um, Then the creature that made the noise would come down. It would wait no longer, for it had seen me and my tortured terror. So it saw him, and it also saw his fear, right? So it's not afraid of him anymore, because he's afraid of it. It would flow to the... To, and there's something about bullies, right? That bully, 15-year-old bully who's beating up a 12-year-old, um, unfair fight. Half mm-hmm. of the reason that bullies act like that is because they know you're afraid, right? That means I could take them, right? Yes. If, if you're, and, and you know, I, I was just playing a game last night where um, if you are fearless, it actually works to your advantage, right? Because if you're fearful, they can come and get you. But if you're, if you're like, uh, Oh, you think you're going to fight me? I'm going to take you down, right? There's something real about this idea of being fearless, um, even when you're fearful, to to your advantage. So he says, Then the creature that made the noise would come down. It would wait no longer, for it had seen me and my tortured fear. It would flow to the floor, through my door, and creep into bed with me. Not, you know, crash through the ceiling and land on top of me and start digesting me. But just would creep into like it's like like a I don't know a cold dog or something wants to snuggle up right <laughs> I would I would know how it looked what color it was and what it wanted with me like uh, he doesn't even know like it, it's almost sexual too right that it's gonna sleep it's gonna come and snuggle up inside his I'm, no I'm not his quite sure it's sexual. Well, that's the thing is that is those creatures are asexual, right? So mm. it's, it's not like it's it, it could be one. So the fact that he, I mean, he's twelve, so there's something to it. But um, so I I read that more as it's 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 sort of crossing an important line that's there in childhood, and that is you know when we're scared in bed as kids, you know what's the number one kid defense? You stick your head under the blankets, don't you? Or you run to your mom's and, and, bed. <laughs> and the, yeah, but there's that thing of kind of the blankets almost have this totemic, you know, yeah. value to kids. You hide under the blankets, and the, the ghosts or the monsters and the witches go away. Or at least that's the rules. Um, it makes no sense, but there is that kind of 
it's something primal and we all do it and we all have that idea that the blankets somehow will protect us obviously if there was a monster or even a burglar blankets ain't gonna cut it no but it's something in the in the child's mind of that if you cocoon yourself away and the fact that it'll come down and just casually get into bed with him if you're gonna i care not for your blanket protection small child <laughs> uh, although you know um I, I there was something on the news uh, the other day about you know the, all the school shootings that are going on in the states, and one of the solutions was you know the, obviously the the terrible one arm the teachers that was that was really god awful, but it's <laughs> almost as bad. I mean probably not in practice but in in sadness of how sad the situation has become, is that they wanted to give bulletproof blankets to the children, right? So they they. The schools, there's like video or at least still footage of, of kids wearing these so very stiff blankets that are designed to shield their bodies. They can huddle under them so when the guy breaks, mm. kicks the door down and gets through the classroom door and starts shooting people, they can huddle, as you say, <laughs> the last defense against. I mean, this is not the solution, right, to this, this sort of horror of modern society is not to... Uh, you know, just you say nothing we can do about it. Just huddle under your your bulletproof vest. Um, you know, a sensible solution is not that. Um, but I want to point out that I even tweeted it when right after I read this story first time. Um, that this has a, a beautiful beautiful meta metaphor. I said it's the best metaphor of 2018 so far. Um, and it's in the next sentence, in the next paragraph. A cold determination came, I know not whence, stiffening my limbs and neck like new sawdust poured into an empty doll. <laughs> I love that it's new sawdust, right? It's him being suddenly made stiff and having a spine and being uh -huh. solid and and not being afraid anymore he says yeah i'm going to die fine let's go out. let's go for it i don't care right that power that's the change that happens to him and he doesn't know where it comes from he just sort of wills it and it or it doesn't even will it it just happens to him cuz he's he's like geppetto's you know puppet <clears throat> he's he's at the whim of every every other force in his life and it's it's pathetic that he you know goes and gets a uh, uh, I don't know a little hatchet and it's falling apart and he goes up there and finds nothing. That's all. I mean, I I can imagine people hearing this story as he tells it to other people and and them like saying, well that's a silly story, but it's not for him, right? For him it's everything. This is what made me, right? I determined right. I'm not going to be whatever would be would have become of me had I not done yeah. what was necessary. Absolutely. I mean, that goes all the way to that last line. Mm -hmm. Nor did I ever know fear again, not even in the war. This. Yep. So it it, it is a character defining moment. I can, I agree. Mm -hmm. I'm going to face my fear even with this crappy hatchet, and you might think it's silly, but for me, this makes me who I am. I pulled out the axe and tried to hold it in my mouth like a pirate's dirk. <laughs> but it was too big and heavy, so I kept it in my right hand. Then on my knees and on my left hand, I went forward on top of the rafters. Every inch took me deeper into the darkness, 
and when I reached and crept past a big rough chimney, not the big rough chimney, but ah, it's like it's a whole new world to him, I might as well have been in a coal mine. And then he systematically clears the whole room, right? The whole space up under the roof. And so that title, Up Under the Roof, is not just uh, the way I would have put it, you know, the thing up under the roof. That actually is not, it's not just what he's afraid of. It's also, he becomes the thing. And if you think about how we normally encounter amoebas now is like, you know, the YouTube video. I showed one of my students an amoeba eating eating some other, it wasn't a paramecium, it was some other thing with a whole lot of cilia. And it is a horror show, man, because they're un, they're unstoppable. They just swallow everything. And then this, we watched in horror as, you know, in about 10 minutes, one of these things grabs a little piece and then just keeps surrounding it. And the th- half of the thing it was being attacked, just a little bit of it got away. And we're like, oh, God. You know, he got away with his limbs, <laughs> but he's okay. He's, he made it, but, you know, it, they just, they're, they're so freaky that um, it's almost like a reversal. It's locking at him, right? Under He's under the microscope, that barrier between the, the ceiling and him. He's on, on uh, under the lights and the plate. It can see him, but he can't see it. This is a complete reversal of that he he it's like the an amoeba coming up and getting its revenge coming out of the m- microscope and seeing seeing the the real world it's it's very Dungeons and Dragons too isn't it? Yes, well, more, more than a few uh, <laughs> oozy blobs and yeah, the, not to mention things that things that lurk on ceilings and pretend to be ceilings will drop down on you. Right. Yep, lurker, lurkers above and great yes. oozes and mm-hmm. there's a gelatinous gelatinous cubes. Gelatinous cube. I remember when I first heard of that in Dungeons and Dragons, I was like, "Is there anything scarier than seeing like, you know, some a sword, some gold coins, and a skull floating inside a cube that's pushing down the hallway towards you, <laughs> like that's translucent, right? That you can see." <laughs> Oh, it's basically it's, if I touch that, it's going to start dissolving me. And the I, scary I, thing is, if it doesn't have bits in it, you can't see it in poor light. Wow. You walk into it. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, those cubes are fun for a GM, not so much fun for the player. <laughs> They're fearful. but they make they make perfect sense because you know you got to clean the dungeon somehow. <laughs> the, the, the dungeon cleaning system. Well, they I, just happen also. I, 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 I don't know what's the origin of them. I, I always assume that they evolved into no, no, that no. Shape. Given the size of the cube, I always thought they were magically created by wizards as a way to clean their dungeons. It's like you, because you can get rid of all the dirt, the grime, the dust, and intruders. So yeah, right. yeah, adventurers. Right. Wow. <laughs> I, I do like this story. I think it's interesting. There's almost there's a a power play actually in the story. But you know, he hears noises upstairs. He's scared. But as it goes on, it seems kind of the creature upstairs is kind of aware of him, and a bit reticent as well, and trying to figure him out. Mm-hmm. It's mirrors. only when the creature spots him and realizes he's afraid of it that the scales are going to tip and it's going to go right. It's lunchtime. I'm having you then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's kind of an interesting 
sort of point that it isn't just a monster in the dark. You, I will eat you. There's something up there, and it's kind of oh, there's something, and it's going. There's something down there, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it figures it out. And it's only when you get to that point where they, well, there's not a confrontation, but there's a moment of contact, shall we say? And the creature thinks, right, it's lunchtime then, and he thinks, well, if I'm dead anyway. <laughs> Where's that old axe? I might as well, might as well go and you know, get this over with. Almost. I wonder. I wonder what the. I mean, I, I read a bit of Manning Wade Wellman's biography, and I noted that you know he he has really interesting biographies. Born in Africa, um, moved around the world, moved to London a couple of times, spent most of his life in the States, and and. It, obviously, this isn't wholly biographical because I don't think he was the right age for World War One. Um, but I think moving around a lot makes you more independent because you know you can't have roots in the community, friends in the community forever. Um, and the, the way that the the other residents, the other dwellers in his building, suggest his life will go is not the way he wants it to go, and obviously not the way Wellman's life went. But it says here, this this taste for reading attracted some curious attention on my part for my guardians. Occasionally, one of them would suggest to the others, not to him, I might be trained for the law or the ministry. Right? Oh, he likes to read. I guess we could make him a lawyer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He, he's a he's a book reader. Um, make him a minister. And of course, he, we don't know what this character ends up. Um, we know he's a soldier at some point, but maybe he gets to become the deep sea diver. He's an adventurer, anyways. Probably doesn't become a deep sea diver, is my guess. Um, but never knows. Maybe, maybe, maybe he kept that. We can't tell. We're not. It's outside the balance of the story. Yeah, but, but you know, it, like I think there was always a a lot more demand for other. I mean, deep sea diver sounds like a great job, and we talk about it a lot. It's kind of like astronaut. <laughs> But I don't think there's that much call for it, right? So he's going to become true, something. What's, what's that? That's true. For a very limited opportunity for deep-sea diving mm-hmm. work. I mean, honestly, there's probably fewer deep-sea divers than there are astronauts. There's a lot of people trained for astronauts, mm. right? And and deep-sea diving is is a is a great idea. It's, it's very exotic and stuff but i don't think there's that much i mean there's probably 50 guys around the world who do it maybe uh, for a living maximum and there's got to be way more astronauts than that even if well maybe not maybe i'm wrong in any case i just think it's it's it is about you know making your own way don't let them make plans for you especially when they're untrustworthy right you can't put any faith in them only thing this kid has to rely on is a is a, a crappy hand axe that doesn't have it's barely seated on itself and and the old books that lie around the the building that nobody else reads just as a capstone now that there according to the bureau of labor statistics in the u.s there are approximately 3,370 people employed as commercial divers that's divers that have to uh use scuba equipment yeah, but is that a deep sea diver? Because I would say that you know every Under- cop, uh, every cop department has one guy they can go to for you know dredging the lake um, or the river. They they work beneath, 
below surface water using scooping gear to inspect, repair, remove, or install equipment and structures. May yeah. conduct tests or experiments, rig explosives, and photograph structures of marine life. Yeah, oh, there's going to be a lot of military ones in the States, for sure. Yeah, so. I, I was thinking, like, commercial deep-sea divers. Yeah, you were thinking ocean. Basically, ocean, ocean, I was thinking those. You were thinking oceanographers. You were thinking, like, John I was thinking Lewis. the bad guys in uh, in a, a Scooby-Doo episode. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> the big brass helmets. You got it. You got <laughs> the it. lead boots. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Davy Jones's uh, uncle or whoever is it. <laughs> Basically, all right. that's all I know about deep-sea deep divers. That's <laughs> what I learned from Scooby-Doo. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.